Blog Talk Radio. All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome into Loretta McNary Live, an awesome radio show here on Blog Talk Radio that airs every Tuesday and Wednesday at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. And today's show will not disappoint, as I'm so happy for all the feedback and the emails and the text messages and the tweets that we're getting about the show and our guests. And today will not disappoint either as our guest, Mr. Ron Hall, is on the line holding. But as you know, we always make a few announcements and then we go straight into our interview. We do not take any commercial breaks. Um, Our show will be sponsored, but it will be at the bookends and not in the middle of a great conversation. So just want to encourage everybody to um, stay tuned and to remember For those who are in Memphis and will be traveling here for the Labor Day weekend, I have been invited and accepted the role as the honorary guest ringmaster at the Universal Soul Circus. Yay! I'm so torn. I'm both excited and a little scary because I'm told I will be coming in on a well-trained, beautiful elephant, you know, if you can fit that into your uh, vision. <laughs> so I got to get up my my um, my courage to, to do that. And also, secondly, wanted to remind everybody to watch the Loretta McNear, the TV show, which airs every Wednesday at 8 p.m. on Comcast 17, every Monday in Atlanta, Georgia, and soon to be in Dallas, Texas in the next um, few weeks. We're still working on, on that deal. And also want to encourage everybody to log in to Best in Black Awards, which is an award that the Tri-State Defender has created. This is the inaugural year for this, and I've been nominated as local media personality in the TV category. So uh, I could use your votes, and I appreciate if you go and log in to that and vote for me. You don't have to be in this. You could be all over the world. Just log in, create a little password, and you can vote for all your favorites in various categories. As always, want to say prayers for all our students, our parents, our educators, that this school will be very successful and safe for everyone involved. So we're going to keep lifting them up in prayer, and that's whether they're in elementary school, middle school, high school, college. Um, we just want everybody to be safe and to get the education because we're all supposed to be lifelong learners. Having said that, this is an awesome time to transition into the interview, the conversation with Ron Hall. He's a New York Times best-selling author. He's an art dealer. He's a friend of a man that I'm sure, based on what I've read, that he never thought in a million years he would become friends with, let alone in the same space at the same time. Everybody, welcome my very special guest, Mr. Ron Hall. Hi there, Ron. Good morning, Loretta, and you do get my vote. I will vote for you, so anyway. <laughs> <laughs> You're so awesome, and i got to yeah. tell everybody, you have, while we're talking, please go to um, the website, and it's samedifferentasme.com, right, Ron? I want you same to go to the website. Kind of, same kind of. Same ideas, kind of different as me. Yeah. Same kind of right. different as me.com, and you can read so much information, and watch that video that they have, because but have some clinics or some tissue or something around you because you're going to definitely um, need it because they've done such an amazing job summing up everything in just a few short minutes. But um, it's so powerful and, and it's, a, it's a big punch. It's a big punch um, emotionally, but in a good way, in a good transforming way. So check that out. But, Ron, tell us, what are you doing now? You wrote the book. You're in talks with uh, a major studio, a Hollywood studio, to get the movie done, but... 
um, I guess we'll start at the beginning. You were an art dealer. You were used right. to the finer things in life. And right. So just take <laughs> us there. <laughs> well, I was uh, just rocking along. Um, you know, I uh, like to tell people that, you know, my – uh, my late wife and I were both living purpose-driven lives uh, at the time. This was maybe 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, her purpose in life was serving our almighty God, and my purpose in life was serving the almighty dollar. And, you know, our paths were just on on two different courses, and, and, and we – we were not like we we very seldom crossed paths because you know when she was chasing God I was chasing money, but the good news is is that she had a dream about a particular homeless man who was poor but wise and by this uh, by his wisdom our city would be changed and she asked me if I would go into the inner city with her and help identify this man of her dreams so. That's, um, you know, I had to, I was never uh, on my bucket list, uh, wanted to be a part of any homeless ministry. It was not something that, you know, I had a passion or a heart for. She had worked, you know, with various homeless ministries uh, uh, in, in the years prior to that. So she had a heart for that, and I guess that's why God gave her this literal dream about this particular homeless man. So... Anyway, that's uh, I'm only on this radio station today because of uh, a godly woman who had a dream, and she went mm-hmm. and pursued the dream to find out if it was real, and 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 actually dragged me along with her. So you might say. <laughs> <laughs> so when she dreamed about the guy, had she physically met him before? Had she met Denver before, or it was all a spiritual um, dream? Vision. No, it was a it was a spiritual dream. She had not met him before and had not seen him, and so, you know, this on this particular morning that that she woke up, we had been building our dream home in Fort Worth, Texas. I had been very successful as an art dealer and an master, you know, a small fortune that uh, that was had allowed us the level to not really have to work anymore and build a, a beautiful new home and to show off our art collection and I was kind of wanting to retire and become a cowboy at our ranch which was just west of Fort Worth, Texas. And on that particular morning as I was getting up maybe to head to the ranch, she began to share with me this dream that she had uh she said it was like a verse in Ecclesiastes there was found in the city a certain poor man uh who was wise, and by his wisdom, our city was changed. And so, anyway, um, she asked me if I would start going with her to feed the homeless at the Union Gospel Mission in, in near downtown Fort Worth. Uh, so I, I did. I went with her that day and and began feeding the people. And I was not, you know, too excited to be there. I didn't like the way the place looked. I didn't like the way the place smelled. And and I was just thinking that. You know, what a waste of time for me to be there because, you know, these people were certainly capable of feeding themselves. It wasn't, you know, I wasn't doing them any great favors to dish spaghetti out on the plate. And one guy 
made a point of telling me that as well that I he could tell that I thought I was better than him so he kind of scared me a little bit but anyway for the next couple of weeks we would go uh once a week and we'd been going there I guess maybe two or three weeks and then one evening as we were getting ready to serve the the uh the evening meal and the men always had to go to a a chapel service and hear a gospel message before they got their evening meal. And so on this particular evening, as the men were exiting the chapel, a big fight broke out. And it was not just a, a little uh, pushing match, you know, like a couple of kids or something. It was mm-hmm. full-on melee pandemonium, yes, of bodies Ooh. being tossed around and tables being overturned and screaming profanities and uh, you know punches thrown and blood splattered stuff and and uh, I mean I was so scared I mean I first of all I had not wanted to be there anyway and exactly. secondly now I'm in the midst the midst of something that appeared to be life threatening to me so I started looking for a hiding place as I could feel the the fight kind of moving in our direction toward the serving line. So I kind of took a cover under a um under a um, serving a stainless steel serving line there and 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 all of a sudden I was wondering I wonder what happened to uh my wife Debbie. So I was kind of thought I'd look out and see and all of a sudden I look and she's kind of jumping up and down like a cheerleader on the sideline of a football game and she was saying that's him that's him so I appear from my hiding place and looking over the counter and 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 I said that's who and she said that's the one I had the dream about and I said which one but when I looked up there was only one man left standing and he looked like a giant of a man he had on no shirt he had on no shoes and just some raggedy old unzipped britches, and he was screaming at the top of his lungs, I'm going to kill whoever done it. I'm going to kill whoever stole my shoes. And she said, the one threatening to kill everyone is the man I had the dream about. And she said, Ooh. and then she looked down at me, still still hunkered down below the serving line, and she said, and Ron, I believe that I heard from God that you have to be his friend and find out what this dream is all about. And I shot back up a look at her, and I said, but Debbie, I was not at that meeting you had with God. And if I'm going to be friends with someone who wants to kill everybody, I think I should go talk to God myself. So uh, anyway, that's that's how we started. He didn't come through the serving line that night. He just kind of disappeared. The fight broke up and moved on, and we served an evening meal. But... That was the first time that I ever saw the man of her dreams. And then, of course, the story begins to unfold from there. <laughs> oh, wow. And a story indeed, because she kept sending you out to find him. I mean, you have to read the book. And you read the book, and it's one of those books where it's so amazingly written. And I like how you said in the video that even the best author couldn't have just put that story together like that. This has to be a real-life true story orchestrated by our Heavenly Father. Um, so I just I just love the story. And the gentleman's name is Denver Moore. And without telling a lot of the story, because I really want people to, to buy the book, um, because it's something that you can pass on and you can read, and it will help you in your personal life too, not only just to read about your story, but that it can help all of us to um to be more loving and more kind and more understanding and more compassionate. So we're going to dedicate this show to um, Denver Moore, who went on to be with the Lord 
March 31st of this year. And what an amazing man. I mean, just his wisdom and the way he would say things, it was almost like, because he had never gone to a formal school, right, Ron? He had never gone to school. He never, right, he 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 never, he had attended school even a day in his life. He grew up on a plantation in Louisiana. He had been born in 1937, and he began work very early um, on a plantation in Louisiana. He had had many tragic things happen to him. Uh, you know, he was living in the home with his grandmother, and she burned up in a fire in that house, and then he went to live with his father, um, and his father then was stabbed to death, just uh, you know, almost right in front of him. But uh, then he went to live with an uncle, and the uncle died while he was plowing with mules. And so then he lived with his uh, half sister. So it was just one tragedy after another. And then when he was a young boy, about thirteen or fourteen. Uh, he was helping uh, a white lady change a flat tire, and some some clansmen came out of the woods and accused him of bothering the white lady, and they put a rope around his neck and dragged him behind a horse, nearly killing him. And he made a promise that day to himself, uh, after he survived that, that he would never again speak to a white woman, and he would never again trust a white person. And he pretty much kept that promise uh, most of his life. He uh, he had some scrapes with the law. He left the plantation uh, when he was still, you know, rather young, maybe around 20 years old or so, and hopped a freight train, became homeless on the streets of Fort Worth, Texas, got in trouble with the law, hopped another freight train, ended up in California, uh, stayed there a few years, hopped another freight train after he got in trouble there, ended up back in Shreveport, Louisiana, where he was arrested for trying to steal 50 cents from a bus driver. And they were sentenced to 20 years in Angola State Penitentiary in 1966. So that was, um, you know, he actually only served 10 years, but he was in Angola State Penitentiary in Louisiana from 66 to 76. And of course, he got out of Angola with no job, no skills, and back on the streets as a homeless man. And that's where he had been for, you know, more than 20 years uh, on the streets, living in the bushes, like basically like a wild animal. When when I met him, and uh, and that first time I laid eyes on him, of course, he was very unkept, and he was uh, screaming that he was going to kill everybody. So, <laughs> but. Um, the good news is, I mean, God intended us uh, to be friends, and uh, at Debbie's insistence every day after this, uh, you know, after he, I thought he was going to kill everybody in the room, she insisted that I would go into the inner city and try to find him, and uh, and then finally I I, I got him in, in the car one day, and uh, the, I'm I'm making a very brief uh, of uh, episode here that took days and, and I wrote about a lot in our book but I'll just to give your listeners a glimpse of this poor man who was wise uh, I went to breakfast with him one morning and and he asked me he said what is okay we kind of lost connection for those who are just tuning in, joining us, this is Loretta McNary live, and my guest is Ron Hall, New York Times bestselling author, and he's sharing 
Um, some of what's in the book is a real life story of he and um, one of his dearest friend became one of his dearest friends, Denver Moore, um, who was a homeless um, man when Ron and his wife Debbie met him. But Debbie had had a dream um, previously about Ron meeting this um, homeless man, becoming great friends, and them changing the city um, that they've lived in. So we're hoping Ron will get back with us. Gotta love technology, and it's great when it works. So we're gonna wait on Ron to call us back. But the name of the book, and, and I always seem to want to <laughs> rename the name of the book. I leave out um, time, but it's called Same Kind of Different as Me. And there's a beautiful website that tells you a lot about the book and the story of Denver Moore and Ron Hall at Same Kind of Different as Me dot com. And so Ron is going to um, be calling, joining us again in our conversation to, to finish the story. And I'm so amazed. I've heard him tell, this is my second time personally hearing him tell the story. And, of course, he's told it countless times. And he always tells it with such compassion and passion that um, I wonder how do you do that? You have to keep telling the same story over and over and over. And it's been years since he's been telling this story. And then he wrote the book. They wrote the book and how he never um, takes a shortcut with it or seems less passionate about it. So that's so commendable. So, Ron, whenever you're back, please um, join back in the conversation. I'm not sure what happened. And so and they, he also, yeah, I see where he's called through. He's going to call back. And so he has a second book that's coming out that's kind of an extension of this book. And they're also, um, like I said, there's a Hollywood movie theater studio looking at making a movie about their story. And, of course, there's always already been some well-named actors who want to play those parts. So we're going to, and the next book is called What Difference? What Different Do It Make? And these are um, words that Denver said, and, and like we said earlier, he had never had any formal school, schooling, as they say, but he had, so much wisdom, and I think Ron had mentioned before he was like one of the smartest people that Ron knew, and you know Ron was a um, a very successful art dealer, and he had made tons of money doing this, and now he's friends with Denver, who you know worked as a sharecropper, who was in prison, who had been homeless, you know, for more than half his life, and now they're friends. <laughs> and I can't, you know, I don't want to go any further and, and kind of steal the thunder, but. Ron is back, so he can finish the conversation, everybody. Welcome back to Loretta McNary Live's awesome and incredible Ron Hall. Hi there, Ron. Hello, Loretta. I don't know what happened. Maybe we had a technical failure there. I think we had a little glitch because my- I was still on, and I, and I kind of lost you, but I was just filling people in, you know, from where you, we had already talked. So you were, you know, you can go from where you left yeah. off. <laughs> anyway, but... Um, you know, I was I was having uh, breakfast with, with you know, coffee with Denver at a Starbucks, and and I he asked me if I he was going back to the point where he said I he said that I had asked him if he would be my friend, and uh, he said there's something he heard about white folks that really bothered him, and it had to do with fishing. And I said, Denver, I'm not a fisherman. I don't even own a tackle box or a rod and reel, and. Uh, he said, well, I bet you can answer this question. And I said, okay, then ask it. He said, well, I heard when white folks go fishing, they do this thing they call catch and release. 
And I said, well, of course they do, Denver. It's a sport. Don't you get it? And he said, no, sir, I don't get that because he said, back on the plantation where I grew up, we'd go out in the morning and we'd cut us some cane poles and and we would dig up some worms and, and we would go sit on the riverbank. And when we got something on our line, we were really proud of what we caught. And he said, so it just occurred to me, if you're a white man that's fishing for a friend and you're going to catch and release, then I ain't got no desire to be your friend. <laughs> and I'll tell you, my mind flashed back to Debbie's dream of her saying that this was a poor man who was wise because the words he spoke to me at that moment were the wisest words I'd ever heard spoken on friendship. And I said, okay, Denver, if you will be my friend, I will not catch and release. And that, of course, was 15 years ago that all of that happened, and we were um, we became friends. He actually became the professor, and I was the student. You know, he he made my life uh, much richer. You know, I'd say I, I had become wealthy from art, but I came became rich through friendship with him. Wow, because I remember um, here either reading it or hearing you um, you say that in the, in the yeah it was in the book that you thought you were doing him a favor you were going to do all this stuff for him because you're run hall and you're building a big house and you have all this money and so you're just going to make yeah. Denver's life so much easier and better and in the in re, in the end you got so much from him then you could have well, never given him yes. Truthfully, Loretta, I was thinking, well, it, you know, he didn't have a job. He had no skills, so I would come let him work in my yard or something like that. That was the way I thought of that I could help him and I could give him some clothes and buy him a few things like that. You know, I, I thought I would be his benefactor or something like that. I had no idea what this man had uh, to offer me or, or what lied ahead of us uh, in our friendship. But uh, as as you know, through reading the book, he he was a profoundly spiritual man, and um, you know, of the my friendship with him was we had a wonderful friendship. We were closer than brothers, but Denver was not capable of sitting down and talking to you about current events or sports or politics or anything. He cared nothing about any of those things in the world. He could only have spiritual conversations. And so he was this spiritual being that had this incredible wisdom. So my wife's dream was real. And then he is the one who began telling us. He was the one who first gave us this uh, warning that something bad was getting ready to happen to my wife. And um, he told me, he said, what Miss Debbie is doing for the homeless on the streets of Fort Worth, she has become precious to God. And he said, when you become precious to God, you become important to Satan. He said, watch your backside. Something bad's getting ready to happen to Miss Debbie. And a couple of days later, she was diagnosed with cancer and given some doctors thought she would only live three months and some doctors thought she might live a year. But the good news, she lived 19 months. And during that 19 months, Denver stayed up. I mean, he lived by a dumpster in the inner city, and at night he would pray all night long by that dumpster, and uh, then he would knock on our door in the morning and bring us the wisdom that he had gleaned in the night from his conversations with God, and he would tell us what was getting ready to happen next. So it was an extraordinary 
time in our lives and uh and even on the final day that she was alive he he came to us to tell us it would be the final day and and the final words that my wife gave to me were don't give up on Denver that God is going to bless your friendship in a way you could never imagine and uh, anyway that's um and and God did you know he took my wife and uh, after after Debbie died Denver moved in with me and he lived with me for the next 9 years and during that 9 years of course we wrote uh we wrote same kind of different as me that 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 stayed 3 years on the New York Times best selling list we wrote another book what difference do it make and between those books and over 700 speaking events across America we helped raise more than 80 million dollars for the homeless and uh, wow. and Denver was invited to the White House as a result of all of that by uh, the Bush <laughs> family and it was uh, it was a, a, an extraordinary day for Denver to be honored in in the White House <laughs> and uh, a man who didn't read and write an ex-con uh you know is sitting there uh, lunching with the president so Oh, that's so amazing. I want you to share um, about when you were sitting, I forget who you guys were talking to, some pastors or something about the homeless um, problem and how they were going to take so many years to solve it and how Denver has this, um, you know, this wisdom again. Right. Well, I mean, he had wisdom in every situation, but we were were meeting with the, the people, the homeless coalition in the major city in America, and they had spent $2 million to develop this plan on how to end homelessness in their city and and spent you know, you know a couple of years developing that plan. And we were speaking uh, at an event to raise money for the homeless in the city, so the mayor and city council and all the city leaders invited us to City Hall to, to hear the plan about how they were going to end homeless homelessness. And uh, so after they spent, you know, 20 or 30 minutes laying out their plan, um, Denver raised his hand. He said, mind if I ask you all a question? And they said, uh, no, go ahead. And he said, why is it going to take you all 10 years? Because the, the title of their plan was how to end homelessness in our city in the in 10 years. It was the 10-year plan to end homelessness. And Denver says, why is it going to take you all 10 years to take care of your business? And and the man who had was head of the committee said, well, first of all, you know, we we have to raise the money. We've got to hire the staff. We've got to build the buildings. We've got to implement the program. And then hopefully after seven or eight years, we'll start seeing results. And then, you know, by 10 years, we hope that we do no no longer have a homeless problem. And then we said, hmm, I understand that. But he said, how many uh, homeless y'all got on the streets here? They said, well, we have over 6,000 homeless people in our city every night that either sleep on the streets or sleep in a shelter. And he said, hmm. He said, uh, how many churches y'all got in your city? And the pastor that was head of the Greater Council of Churches said, we have over 6,500 churches in our city. And Denver said, well, there's your answer. Every church, take them one, and somebody ain't getting none, but we'll take care of this problem in 30 days. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody and just looked think- at him and was like, 
Wow, what simple wisdom comes from this man. It just was extraordinary. So anyway, that was the challenge he set out. Of course, they didn't take his. They're still trying to implement the 10-year plan. <laughs> but uh, $2 million, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, you're starting to just, and for me to remember all of this, and this was over a year ago that you were here and I heard this story, but I also wanted to um, – it encourages anybody who listens can get some nuggets of truth. They can get some encouragement with something that they're dealing with. But then when you talk about when you guys had wrote the book and you talked about having a person in place that you thought could get you on, you know, get the book out there so you could sell the book, can you talk about after you finally got the book written, that process of getting, you know, and then having all the books everywhere and then, you know, turning the corner? Well, Well, first of all, you know, I had never written a book before, and Denver, after he moved in with me, he looked at me one morning and he said, you know, Mr. Ron, ain't nobody ever going to believe our story. We got to write us a book. And I said, Denver, what is this we? Uh, I said, you don't read and write, and I've never written anything, so uh, who's going to write this book? He said, oh, you know what I mean. He said, I'm going to tell you my part of the story, and so you write it down. And then you know your part of the story. You write that down, and when we get through with those, we'll put them together, and we'll have us a book. And I said, okay. So for the next three and a half years, we sat at my breakfast table, and we wrote us a book. And uh, and then I spent the next year and a half trying to get anybody to read it or a publisher or an agent or anything. But first-time authors telling personal stories, publishers and, and no one really wants but I knew that we had a great story. I just was so persistent, and, and but nothing was happening. So finally, I self-published the book. And then one of those self-published copies got in the hands of the, one of the people at Thomas Nelson. And they read the manuscript and said, we'll publish your book. So anyway, they they did me a great favor to publish it. So we now have a publisher, now had a publisher, but our publisher uh, – was printing the books, but they didn't really have a plan for selling them. So we thought, well, how are we going to sell the books? So they just we, a lot of them were just dumped on our uh, doorsteps. But I'll say that they did, they really did have a secret plan, and their secret plan was that they were going to send one copy of this book to Oprah Winfrey, and then of course she would love our book and put it on her book club. We would be an instant bestseller. Well, they did send her a book, but with no response. In fact, we heard from more than 500 of our friends and readers that sent her a book, and there was no response. She was probably so mad at all these people just dumping these books on her. But anyway, we didn't we didn't get on the Oprah Winfrey show, but we knew that you know, of course, after Oprah Winfrey, of course, we would have been on the on all the morning talk shows in New York and everything. But mm-hmm. so. Finally, we didn't know what to do. The books, we had piles of books sitting in our living room in, in, in Texas. And uh, and so we decided we would launch our book at the Texas Book Fair in Austin. So it was headed up by my son-in-law's uh, cousin who was chairman of the board of it and my late wife's best friend and, and namesake of my daughter was the uh, chairman of the board and, and the other one was the president. So I I knew that we could get in there, so we just made plans to go launch our book there. But a couple of weeks before we were supposed to be there, we get a letter from them saying that we were not invited, that our book was too religious. So, uh, so 
she it was like a big uh stab in the heart. I couldn't believe it. Even, you know, our our family, you know, just some good old fashioned nepotism. Oh my goodness! I hope he hasn't hasn't lost him again. Okay, um, so he's talking about the you know how they weren't able to get the book in a place where they thought they could get the book done. <clears throat> and of course, all of this is in in the book. Same kind of different as me with Denver Moore and Ron Hall being the authors of it. And that story is so amazing. I really wanted um, you all to be able to hear because that'll encourage you. Because I know a lot of people are writing books. Are you back, Ron? Yes. Okay, great. <laughs> okay, so you, you you they didn't get you got the, the letter and saying that you weren't invited to this. And let me know when you have to go because I have already gone over our twenty five minutes that I I asked for. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, what I uh, I'll finish this story. But anyway, I got uh, Denver walked in the room and I said, "What are we going to do?" And he said, "We're going to bless those folks right now." And I said. Uh, oh, great. So we started praying and we started blessing these folks. He said, all these folks have done us a favor. And I said, how is that? He said, well, we didn't write this book for Oprah Winfrey. We didn't write this book for all the ABCs and CBs and all those other letters of the alphabet you were talking about, the shows we were supposed to be on. He said, we wrote this book for Miss Debbie, but more important than that, we wrote this book for God. He said, so... I'll tell you, don't ever ask anybody again to do anything for this book. We're going to give it over to God and let him take care of his business, and you and I will be just fine. And uh, So anyway, that's what happened. We gave the book over to God, and God turned it into, without any money or advertising or anything else, he turned it into a New York Times bestseller for more than three and a half years. So. Wow. Oh, my goodness. And how did Denver start doing artwork? Because I know you were an you were an art dealer and you did some sculpturing and some, and some welding and you know you did that and of course we know now you wanted to you know you want to be a cowboy. But how was Denver always an artist too, or were you part of that encouraging him to become an artist? <laughs> no, no, he was not an artist at all. In fact, he had really uh, those skills, and he didn't want any skills. He didn't even watch television. He didn't read. He didn't uh, do anything. But he, what he was really good at was drinking, and so after he moved in with me every morning when I would uh, wake up and I would go in the kitchen, he would sometimes be passed out on the floor of the kitchen where he had managed to uh, go through my very fine wine collection, and and he had uh, so he couldn't help himself. That's all he had known for all these years on the streets, and and so I said, Denver, we got a channel your energies into something other than drinking up all my expensive wines. And so um, I said, I'm going to teach you to paint. This will be fun. And he said, I'm no artist. And I said, well, you're going to become an artist. So he said, I don't know how to draw. I said, you don't need to know how to draw. So I just got some canvases and some paints and some brushes, and I put them in his hand, and I said, just start moving your hand around, and whatever comes to mind, just put it on the canvas. And so anyway, he he did, and... uh, and the next morning, that it was the first. This was I did that one evening, and the next morning when I woke up was the first morning that he had not been drunk in my house since he had moved in. <laughs> and and so he was bright eyed, and he looked at me with this astonishment, and I said, he said, "Come here, I got to show you something." So I went and uh, what was his studio, and he had painted a painting of an angel. And I said, wow, Denver, that is fantastic. I can't believe that that you did that last night. 
And I said, uh, I said, how much you want for that? And he said, well, I expect about a million dollars. Like you know, and I said a million dollars. He said, yes. He said, you got a Picasso over there in your house that you want a million dollars for. And I said, I know, but you're no Picasso. And he said, well, he said, I believe it's every bit as good as that Picasso. And I said, well, Denver, I mean, at a million dollars, I can't afford to buy your paintings. And he said, Mr. Ron, I ain't asking you to buy it. I just want you to sell it for that. So I said, oh, okay. <laughs> So anyway, he ended up giving that uh, painting to Sister Betty at the Homeless Mission. And, and, uh, and that was how he started his art career. And then. Every night from then on, he was painting and and never really drinking again. So it was uh, it was a great thing for him. And and of course, I loved. It. He gave him a lot of self confidence and gave him some notoriety. He began having art shows and became a real celebrity. So <laughs> I mean, the story is so heartwarming, and I like how you know Denver tells his side and you tell your side, and then it just seems like they start to to meet at the end, and then you wrote the second book. And it's just a beautiful story, one that if you don't hear from you, you just think that you were just an incredible writer, Ron. You and were just these amazing writers, <laughs> and you're telling just a, a wonderful story that would please uh, Miss Debbie and um, our dear Lord because it's one of forgiveness and compassion and um, patience and forgiveness and understanding. So it's just a beautiful book. Well. It was uh we had a beautiful run and a beautiful life together. He became, you know, we were we were closer than brothers like I said and then this past uh March 31st he was supposed to be with me at the ranch and uh on the day I left to go to the ranch he didn't feel like it and he said I'll come I'll come out there tomorrow. We were going to spend the weekend at the ranch like, you know, we do all the time and so um, that night I called and he said, well, he was doing better that he would get up in the morning and drive out to the ranch. So I said, well, I'm going to call you in the morning and to remind you because there's some people out here that would like to meet you and see you and some of your friends that know you're going to be out here. So he said, okay, well, call and remind me in the morning. So the next morning I called to remind him and he didn't answer his phone. And then I kept calling all day long and he didn't answer his phone. And finally by evening I was worried about him and I asked someone to go check on him and they found that he had died in his sleep the night before. So, But his health had deteriorated so much that he was able to do very little and had was no longer able to travel with me on speaking events and things like that. So, And he had been praying, I guess. He was he was ready to go home and, and be with the Lord and rejoin Miss Debbie in heaven. And so it was... Uh, yeah, it was it was what he had been praying for, and so I, I praise God he just fell asleep and woke up in the arms of Jesus, and with no pain and no suffering, and 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 it was a, a I guess the way we all ultimately want to go when it's our time. So absolutely, because he he was he was seventy five at the time, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you know his. Well, I his know that you have. You you still doing this thing, and you have to, I guess, because you know Miss Debbie and and for Denver. Do you ever feel like a lot of it now is, um, I guess, at what point did you feel like this was bigger than you? Because you know you went in thinking it was going to appease Miss Debbie, and that you can help Denver. You began to um, become a, a more of a person that God created you to be along the way. And so, when did you realize? And this is my last question. I'm gonna let you go. That this was bigger than you. 
Well, um, you know, I I realized it was bigger than me when you know Denver all of a sudden you know began showing up at our uh, doorstep and 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 he was a true spiritual being and a true messenger from God and I and I and I, and I realized that you know we were wealthy we had great friends in the Christian community and and we had the availability to all the greatest medical uh, doctors and services uh, during Debbie's cancer. But what I realized was that God chose the poorest, most dangerous man in the city to be the one that comforted us the most and brought us the truth through the 19 months of her of her illness. And I thought that this truly is, you know, God and God getting my attention. And um, so, you know, I just kind of started relaxing and, and just enjoying uh, the fact that, you know, God had a plan for me. He had a plan for, uh, you know, this book that we didn't even know would exist at that time because, you know, not ever being an author and writing your first book and it becomes three and a half years a New York Times bestseller is <laughs> that can only happen by God. So, Amen. And, and raising $80 million for the homeless can only happen, you know, by God doing those things. So, you know, that's... Um, but I, I knew, um, you know, back early on that this was this was going to be bigger than me because when Denver stood up at Debbie's memorial service and there were over a thousand people there, and when he got through speaking, he got a standing ovation from more than a thousand people at a funeral, and I've never seen that happen. And all of a sudden, I knew that something really big was going to happen. <laughs> Well, like I say, it's, it's such a beautiful story, and, and I'm deeply honored and, and very um, thankful that you allowed this time with me and my audience to share uh, what God's doing in your life and, and how it humbly all began just out of a desire to please um, to please your wife and, and to um, be a blessing to Denver and then, you know, how it all exploded into God's magnificence um, as only he can do. So I'm very grateful, and my prayers are, are with you to continue the work that you began and that it continues to be um, a blessing to not only the community in which you live and serve, but and to this whole world. So, Ron Hall, thank you so much. Thank you, Loretta, for having me on your show. Let's stay in touch. <laughs> All right, we'll definitely stay in touch, okay? Thank you so much, and I'm going to keep right. my eyes and ears open for more things that you're doing out there, okay? All right, good. Thanks. All right. And as always, thank you all so much for listening to Loretta McNary Live, the radio show. Always think positive dreams, big dreams. Help someone along the way. We'll see you next Tuesday. God's blessings overflowing in each of your lives. And ask someone to to be a blessing to everyone else as you pass them. We'll see you next Tuesday. Bye-bye.